today comes from Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. This is God's word. Lord, thank you for this wonderful and beautiful day, God. Lord, I thank you for another day, Lord. Father, we worship you, Lord. Do everything we do, God. Songs, dances, our hobbies, Father. Everything we do and we enjoy, we do for you, God, and through you. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Excited to be with you guys today. I have a question for you. What was the most beautiful thing you experienced this week? What was the most beautiful thing you experienced this week? Maybe for you it was a song you heard on your morning commute or sitting in a coffee shop. Maybe it was something you saw in nature like the landscape of the snow covering over the mountains, or as the sunset, the sky danced with deep purples and vibrant oranges. Maybe for you it was a scent, it was a candle that you loved and recently bought, or the smell of something wonderful cooking in the kitchen. Maybe it was something you tasted, like a beautiful glass of wine, or a perfect cup of coffee, or your favorite dinner staple. Maybe it was something you experienced at work. A new opportunity has unfolded before you, or suddenly, this thing you've been working really hard at, you finally figured it out. And like pieces coming together, it finally worked, and ah, beautiful. Maybe for you it was something in relationship. The nearness of your spouse as you drifted to sleep, or the sound of deep laughter from a child. Whatever that beautiful moment is, I want you just to hold it for a minute in your mind. And just keep it there. Savor it. What does this moment do to you? Does it bless you? Does it warm you? Does it encourage you? Does it strengthen you? Does it humble you? And what does this moment ask of you in response? Gratitude? Delight? Awe? How about worship? When we think about the idea of worship, our minds are immediately drawn to what we just did together as a community. Right, A people gathered, singing an arrangement of songs as a part of a Sunday gathering. And you certainly wouldn't be wrong. But the moment of beauty that you were just holding in your mind, for some reason, doesn't seem to quite fit in the category of worship. But what if beauty was actually a pathway to worship? What if our ordinary moments of beauty are actually given to us as gifts meant to point us towards something that is truly transcendent? What if encountering something of beauty actually brought us to fa face to face with the source of beauty, God himself? N.T. Wright says this, our ordinary experiences of beauty are given to us to provide a clue, a starting point, a signpost from which we move on to recognize, to glimpse, to be overwhelmed by, to adore, and so to worship. Not just the majesty, but the beauty of God himself. Beauty is always an invitation to encounter something more. Now the problem is often that we are simply satisfied with the thing, that the thing we find beauty in, and we never allow it to lead us to the source. You see, in our modern thinking, we think of ourselves as merely thinking beings, right? We are brains on a stick who, on occasion, feel. But the data is in. 
We are a compilation of feelings, desires, and longings. We are feeling beings who think. Much of our lives are lived not out of the place of reason, but out of the place of longing. This is the place in which we live our lives. And so the problem that we sometimes think is that our desires, our longings are too strong. They are too much. We want too much. We crave too much. But in reality, they're not big enough. Don't believe me? Take it up with our boy C.S. Lewis who says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. If we were to realize that our encounters with beauty were an invitation to worship, we would find the ultimate fulfillment in what beauty points to, which is relationship with God himself. We would find that at the end of our desires, they always lead us back to God. Today, we continue in our series, The Sunday Gathering, Liturgy, Formation, and the People of God, where as a community, we are slowing down and taking a look at why we do what we do when we gather. And today, we're looking at why we sing. Now, if you've been coming to our services for any amount of time, you will realize quickly that we are a community who cares deeply about singing together, or to use more Christian terminology, worship. Now, I realize that as I say the word worship, we might carry with us different meanings. And so what I want to do is come together on a shared definition. You good with that? Cool. So what is worship? The English word worship is, uh, literally comes from the word that was together once before, worship. It means to accord worth, to uh, truly value something, to recognize and respect it for the true worth that it has. When we worship, we are ascribing worth to something, worth-ship. In Hebrew, and there is no chance that I'm going to try and say that word for you today. You can look it up and hear somebody else pronounce it. It means to literally bow down or to lay prostrate. So the same word for worship is used to use the same as if somebody bowed before a king. Same exact word, worship. And it's there in Hebrew. You can give it a shot if you want. I'm not going to. In Greek, it's the word proskuneo. Willing to try that one with you today. Pros meaning before and kuneo meaning to kiss or adore. The literal translation is to kiss the hand. And so worship is to kiss, to kneel before, to offer reverence and respect towards one being. Now, here's what I want you to notice first. Notice the language is embodied. I'm going to keep bringing that up throughout the series. If you're sick of it, we've got a long series to go. Embodied is the key aspect of worship. Anytime the biblical authors talk about worship, they're always talking about something somebody does with their body. In the modern West, we overemphasize the worship with just our minds, when that's not a category the biblical authors have. Now, do you worship with your mind? Yes, but also with your body. In the biblical paradigm, you don't have a body, you are a body. You don't have a soul, you are a soul. You are a fully integrated being, meaning you worship with your whole self. Think about all the language the Psalms use about worship. Bow down, lift your hands, sing, clap your hands, etc. This is what the biblical authors think of when they think of the word worship. Richard Foster says, God calls for worship that involves our whole being. The body, mind, spirit, and emotions should all be laid on the altar of worship. Worship, brothers and sisters, is always the involvement of the whole person. And so the biblical authors use this, ling of ling use this language of worship to describe a whole life surrendered to God, 
not merely a moment. Think of what Paul says in Romans 12 too. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is the proved worship, right? So as we're talking about worship, and specifically what we're talking about today, we're going to be more specific. Our focus is a little bit tighter in on the idea of worship. And so what we're going to be talking about as a community today is the particular aspect of worship and the practice of singing together as a community. So I want to acknowledge the biblical authors used worship to talk about a whole life surrender to God. We could talk about that today, but our focus is going to be much more singular on just the aspect of singing as worship, not worship in itself. So moving forward, can we come to an agreement? When I say worship, I'm meaning just singing for today. In other contexts, I can mean it more holistically. Today, we're talking about singing, just so I'm not going back and forth between singing and worship. Are we good with that? Cool. All righty. So what would be particularly helpful is to not get caught up in secondary conversations about worship. Here's what I mean by that. When we begin to talk about worship, secondary conversations begin to rise. First, it's like, what types of music are we talking about? What about the lyrics? What about the instruments? What about fog machines? What about stage lights? All of those things. Secondary. In defining worship, right, I think it's really helpful for us to first talk about what worship is not. First, worship is not a concert. I love a good concert. Who loves a good concert? If you ain't raising your hand, you lying, right? You all got that song or that artist who when they come on the radio, right, it is a concert in your car. I love a good concert. I love singing my guts out at a concert of a band or, or a, mu a musician that I love. Worship is not that. If I'm honest, I can see how when you walk into a Sunday gathering, you might think it would be a concert in some churches, in a lot of ways, the Western church has organized the Sunday gathering to look and feel a lot like a concert. Worship has shifted exponentially since the integration of technology. A hundred years ago, you would have walked in the room, somebody would have handed you a paper bulletin that would have had all the music lyrics on it, and somebody on an organ or a kind of sketchy sounding piano would have led us in worship. That would have been the totality of the worship experience. Now you walk into a building and there are click tracks and reverb. There is a full arrangement of instruments and moving lights and fog machines and LED screens with moving backgrounds to accentuate the songs, lyrics that we are singing. Now, are all of these things bad? No. Thank God we don't have to print a bunch of paper bulletins for everybody anymore, right? We could just stick the lyrics on the screen behind us. But what has happened? What has happened is it's taken worship from the people and it's restricted it to the stage. J.Y. Kim says this, rather than a single church community singing together, we are increasingly becoming a gathering of audiences who watch the professionals perform. This growing gap between the people and those on stage perpetuates the idea that worship is like a concert. Now here at Zion, we deeply care about offering God our best, including our music and our singing. We have a high standard of excellence when it comes to our worship towards God. And so we find it helpful to like project the music, to project the lyrics behind the team. But also, you will find at Zion that we value simplicity. Meaning, we always want to keep the main thing the main thing. And so we're going to have worship sets here that are not designed for efficiency and appeal, but for invitation and adoration. We make thoughtful decisions about every aspect of worship to ensure that it does not become a performance and that every time we gather as a people and sing, we're inviting people into substance, not a spectacle. Which leads me to my second idea, which is this. Worship is not hype. I've been in environments and conversations where worship is talked about not through the language of encounter or adoration, but through the language of energy and excitement. They say things like, our worship needs more energy. We want to feel excitement in the room. Now, does worship produce those things? Yeah, absolutely it does. A fruit of encounter is joy. And joy looks like dancing and singing and lifting of the hands and shouting. 
But these are always byproducts of encounter, not the purpose for the worship set. They are the fruit of what flows from it. And so I want to say this. There are people who I disagree with on this issue, and I think that their hearts are in the right place. I think that their desire is genuinely to encourage people. Like, they acknowledge that, like, the week's pretty hard, and so they don't want to have, like, a sad and somber set. I understand that, and they want to instill courage, and I honor that desire. But I also want to say this. The biblical paradigm of worship is not to lead us to a place of happiness. It's to bring one's whole self to God. To try and create an environment of hype is to try to manufacture what only the Spirit can do. We're trying to get to the outcome by our means, not letting the Spirit lead us to a place of joy. Now, this might be a little harsh, but it is what it is. I can't help think of the story in Acts 8, where there's a man named Simon who's formerly a, a sorcerer. He practiced witchcraft and stuff. And he comes to faith, and he sees God powerfully working through Philip and the other disciples to heal, to restore, to do incredible things by the power of the Spirit. And so when he finds out that the disciples are doing this, he comes to them and offers them money, saying, give me this power that you have. Acts 8, this is Peter's response to him. May your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray for the Lord. And pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. The disciples take this act seriously. Why? Because the root behind what he's trying to do is purchase what only the Spirit of God can do. But the Spirit is not a force to be activated or bought. It is a person to, he is a person to know. It is a relationship to have. And so when we think that buying lights and click tracks and subs and sounds is going to produce Spirit-filled worship, we're doing the exact same thing, trying to bring about a certain result by our own means, by creating the right Type of environment. And so if we're thinking about the right ambiance, mood lighting, fog in the air, and how these things can create a moment of encounter, we're trying to manufacture a move of the Spirit. And may the church repent of that. Underneath this desire for hype is a misunderstanding that the Spirit only moves in positive emotions. It is a misunderstanding that that. We can only bring to God or experience with God the good things, joy, happiness, you know, excitement. But if our worship doesn't reflect the whole human experience, then here's the question. Are we being truthful in worship? If our worship doesn't reflect the totality of human experience, then are we being truthful in worship? At the very least, we're not being biblical. All throughout the scriptures, there is space for lament. Now, the last thing that I want to say is this. Worship is not preparation for the sermon. We can mistakenly think that worship is the prep for the sermon, that this act of singing together prepares us for what the service is actually about, which is the talk. And nothing could be further from the truth. I love preaching and teaching. I dig this. I love listening to preaching and teaching. I love the act of preaching and teaching. I love talking about preaching and teaching. Don't get me started. I'll talk about it all day. But my most powerful moments of encounter were never in a sermon. They were always in moments of worship. I believe in the theology behind preaching sermons. If I didn't, we wouldn't be doing this right now. But the most powerful moments of encounter have always come through worship. A few years ago, I noticed that my theology and my practice did not align. Here at our church, 90% of our time was spent around the sermon. And so as a leadership team, we came together, we repented of that, and we changed our services to where much of the service is actually blown out so we could have time for worship and response. And so that everything doesn't orbit around the sermon. Everything orbits around encounter with Jesus. And so... We did this shift together because we wanted our theology to line up with our values. And so what we want to do here is bring a beautiful balance between the word and worship. That's what worship is not. 
For the remainder of our time, I want to work our way through a small portion, and that's being generous, a verse in Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, written to a community in Colossae that we know as the Colossians. And here, Paul, who is a church planter, is giving instructions to a community on who they are and what they should do when they gather. And as we work our way through this small passage, we'll be looking at worship through four key movements. You ready? Worship is response. Worship is formation. Worship is resistance. And worship is overflow. First, worship is response. Paul begins the discussion on worship in this community of Jesus with this line. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. In order to give an instruction in worship, Paul begins, the com- begins by reminding the community of the story they find themselves in. He says, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. First, let. Here, Paul is letting them know that they are about to do something called active participation, meaning it's going to require something from them, surrendering to allow this message to do what it's going to do. Second, the message of Christ, namely, the good news that Jesus came to proclaim and live, namely the gospel. So this community is to allow the good news about Jesus to dwell among them richly. That is, as a community, they would live the reality of the good news in such a way that it is abundant in their community. You can see it bursting at the seams, the fruit of the message of Jesus. And so what is Paul communicating to them? He's communicating to them that they live in a story that begun way before them, and they're just simply joining in it. That this community is not starting something new, but rather joining something that was begun a long time ago. In a phrase, Paul's communicating that worship, communicating that worship begins with God. When we think about the story, both that the Colossians find themselves in and that we find ourselves in, uh, we think about us entering into the story and kind of it beginning with us. But the reality of worship begins far before that. Even as we turn to the opening of the scriptures, we read about the powerful moment of Genesis 1 where God speaks everything into existence. But I want to draw our attention even earlier than that. Before creation, there was a community of love known as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus gives us a glimpse into this moment in a moment of prayer where he says in John 17, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because, notice this line, you loved me before the creation of the world. That before the universe was spoken into existence, Love existed in the Trinity, in Father, Son, and Spirit, in this community of love. And this is where worship begins, is in that relationship. Mike Cosper says this, So before the world began, there was love. It flowed perfect, complete, and constant between the three persons of the Trinity. This love was unending appreciation, a perpetual beholding and rejoicing in the goodness and perfection of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was and is a totally self-sufficient community of love and glory. At its heart, worship is rooted in this love. The Trinitarian community is, in a sense, perpetually beholding one another with love and amazement. We're able to peek, in, we're able to peek through these windows of that love in the Bible when we see the Son worship the Father, the Father adore and exalt the Son, and the Spirit both celebrated and celebrating others. What we must realize is that worship is never about us initiating something. It is always someone we respond to. Worship begins with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Richard Foster says, Worship is the human response to the divine initiative. It is our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. We see this realized all throughout the story of scriptures. Oh, the story of the scriptures. All throughout the story, we see worship overflowing from people who have encountered this living God. In creation, we see that out of this overflow of love, God creates the world. And we see in this world, as this world is being formed, Father, Son, and Spirit are delighting in the creation. In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Cimmerillion, 
I always have the hardest time saying that word. Uh, the author who wrote Lord of the Rings, this is a prelude to that, imagines creation as God singing the world into existence. In the creation narrative, we see cadence and rhythm of a song as each day is being breathed out. And there's this common refrain, and it was good. And it was morning and night the first day, the second day, the third day. From a lot of pet perspectives, creation begins with a song. The Father, Son, and Spirit, Trinity, are singing the world into existence. And here's what we see throughout the rest of the scriptures. Creation sings back. Notice what the author of the psalm said, Psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Later in the life of Jesus, as he's making his way to Jerusalem to be crucified, people are worshiping him. We celebrate this as Palm Sunday. And as he's coming through, some of the Pharisees tell Jesus he needs to rebuke these people because they're worshiping him as God. Does anyone know what Jesus tells them? He says, truly I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Creation is brimming with worship back to God. We see this in the Exodus. When God delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt and they pass through the waters, what is the first thing that they do? Have a potluck? Take a nap? Run for their lives? They stop and worship. Moses and Miriam lead this community who's just experienced a rather traumatic event of leaving slavery and crossing the Red Sea. And the first thing they choose to do is worship. We have the Psalms, an entire book in the scriptures, in the library of scriptures that is dedicated to music, to singing, to these psalms, which are songs. And this whole book has carried the people of God for thousands of years, always to lead us to the place of worship. God thinks so highly of worship, it is a huge part of the canon. We see this in the life of David as he restores the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. What is his first act as king? Lower taxes, build a statue of himself, to lead a worship set. He leads the ark into the city with dancing and singing. And there's 30 years of nonstop worship and singing as a part of his rule and reign. He is showing that where the kingdom of God is, it looks like worship. What did we just go through as a community for our uh, Advent series? That surrounding the birth of Jesus were all what? Songs. That is the creators coming to the earth, the only response Zechariah and Elizabeth could have, Anna and Simeon could have, the angels could have, Mary could have, was rejoicing in song. In the upper room, Jesus gives his most important discourse, highly important discourse with his disciples. And just before Jesus leaves to go to the garden to pray and to ultimately be crucified, what is Jesus' last act with his disciples together? They worship. Check out this line, Mark 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Worship was the last thing that Jesus did with his disciples before they went to the garden to pray. That's how important it was to him. In a line that chances are you've probably read and never noticed, we see worship. We see this happen at the cross. As Jesus is being crucified, what are the words on his lips but a psalm he grew up memorizing and singing in the temple, Psalm 22. What kind of psalm is this? Is this, don't worry, everything's going to be okay? No, it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus chooses to communicate what he's experiencing in the crucifixion, he chooses the words that David penned about what he was experiencing from his enemies. Worship was on Jesus' lips as he's facing the reality of the cross. We see that the church, in its earliest expressions, were all gathered around practices of worship. In Acts 2, which is like the go-to passage for teaching about the early church, the text tells us that they gather daily, singing, to God, praising God. And all throughout the book of Acts, we get these little moments and glimmers where we find the church praying and worshiping together. 
And if you're still skeptical, I haven't built a strong enough case yet. Let's talk about the new creation. When John gets his apocalyptic vision that we know as the book of Revelation, the whole book is littered with what? Worship, songs, all throughout. John keeps interrupting himself and breaking out in song. A maybe crass way to view Revelation is a musical. The whole thing is constantly breaking out in song because this is the fruit of encounter. Am I building my point, ladies and gentlemen? The whole scriptures are littered with worship, namely us singing together. This is not an accessory for the people of God. It's foundational. Our faith is a singing faith. So this is why every Sunday when you show up, we do a call to worship. A call to worship is a call for our community to collectively participate in worship. Hear this, that is already happening. When we come to worship together, we are not starting something new. We are joining in the song already being sung. What we get from the pictures of images of God is that there are constantly angels um, and or seraphim and or whatever language you want to use, cherubim, surrounding his throne. And what are they doing? Interpretive dance. No, they are singing. And what is their song? Holy, holy, holy. And so when we come together in worship, we are saying we're joining in heaven's song. We're joining in what's already being sung around the throne of Jesus. As we come to worship, we join in that song. Eugene Peterson says this, in the call to worship, notice this, we first hear God's word to us. So as we start our worship service, we usually begin with a passage in the Psalms. We remind ourselves that the songs that we are singing are the songs that have been sung since God has been speaking to people. And we remind ourselves that this is a much bigger story that's at play here and that we're joining in something already happening. Mike Cosper. The first thing we need to acknowledge when we gather with God's church is the whole thing from the from the from the entire creation to the very thought of gathering to worship the creator was God's idea. We don't gather because we're clever. We don't meet because we figured something out that the rest of the world has missed out on. We come because God is the great initiator. He made the world. He made us, and he is remaking us in Jesus. Our gatherings, our songs, our sermons, our fellowship around the table, it's all a response to his initiation and invitation. Worship begins with God. It is our response. Second, worship is formation. Paul goes on, he says this, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Now I want you to notice that Paul tells the community of Jesus that the way they are to teach and instruct, i.e. disciple, i.e. spiritual formation, how are they to do that? Through singing songs. He does not say, come and attend all 17 hours of my lectures. He says the way that you teach and admonish, instruct, encourage, build up is through songs. And he uses three categories, psalms, hymns, and song from the Spirit. Psalms being the psalms throughout the scriptures, the, the songs that the people of God have sung for millennia. Hymns, these are songs written for the community of Jesus, by the community of Jesus. And lastly, songs of the Spirit. Some of your translation might have, so translation might have spiritual songs. The word here is literally, uh, the word that's being used here is, is not spiritual as in non-material, but spiritual as in from the Spirit. So these are songs from the Spirit. We've adapted different language in that we say things like spontaneous worship, which means Jake and our worship team begin every set not exactly sure where they're going to go. That first song you hear is usually spontaneous. 99% of the time is, Holy Spirit, what are you doing in the room? Let's sing. Let's join in the song already being sung. This is this in practice. This act, this act of being spontaneous. And what it does is it puts us in line with what the Spirit longs to do already. Now, all of this, all of these songs, hymns, songs, and songs of the Spirit are meant to point us to a reality that worship is formation. Said another way, worship forms us to be like Jesus. Or to say it another way, we become like what we worship. N.T. Wright, 
There are two golden rules at the heart of spirituality. You become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe and admiration and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of that character, of the object of your, or your, of your worship. So what happens when you worship the creator God whose plan is to rescue the world and put it to rights has been accomplished by the lamb who was slain? The answer comes in the second golden rule. Because you were made in God's image, worship makes you truly human. You discover more of what it means to be fully alive. To say it clearly, when we worship God, we become like him. And as we become like him, we become more fully human. The inverse is also true. When we uh, worship other things, we become like them. When we worship success, we begin to image greed. When we worship appearance, we begin to image vanity. When we worship approval, we begin to image insecurity. Your life is reflective of that which you worship. What image are you reflecting into the world? Now, one of the ways that worship forms us is it forms us again to reality. Worship is a realignment with reality. When we worship, we declare reality into the world. We declare truth into the world. As we gather to worship, we sing who God is and who we are. And this very act of singing has formative power over us. I love what Willard Sperry says. He says this, worship is a deliberate and disciplined adventure in reality. When we sing, we're proclaiming what is true, even if you don't feel it, even if you don't think it, even if you're not necessarily, you're sure, not necessarily sure you agree with it. You sing it, and it forms you. Singing is deeply connected with memory. Don't believe me? Recite the ABCs. You all start the same thing. A, B, C. You remember through song. It forms you. Chances are, if you had to find a letter somewhere in that, you would use the song to find the letter that you were looking for. It forms you. Singing forms you. It accesses part of your brain uh, that, that webs things together. And a lot of work is being done in education in terms of linking learning with songs. Don't believe me? Ask a teacher. So boom, take that, right? It realigns us with reality. So when we worship, we come face to face with truth. And this encounter of truth can also be understood as prophecy. Worship functions as prophecy. Truth about who God is and who we are in him, that truth has the power to set us free from lies and bondage. Worship has the unique ability to break the chains of lies and deception and bring about freedom and restoration. As we declare God's truth over one another, there is healing. My hunch is that even as we were worshiping today, some people in this room were experiencing healing. They were being reminded of something they had forgot. They were being assured of something they felt insecure about. They were being held and their anxiety and worry, realizing they were loved by God. This is what worship has the power to do. Now, I hear the objections in the room. What if I don't feel it? You know? What, what if I come, and it's been a long night, and to be totally honest, I don't love the song that Jake chose. It's not my favorite. What if I just, ugh, I don't feel it, you know? I'll let Eugene Peterson deal with you. He says this. We live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there could be no authenticity doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different. That we can act ourselves in a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel our ways into a new way of acting. Worship is the act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. When we obey the command to praise God in worship, our deep essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. What am I saying? Am I saying fake it till you make it? No. That would be asking you to be complicit in a lie. But here's what I am saying. Practice till you become it. Do it till your feelings change and watch the fruit that that has. 
we must take worship seriously. There are the more intellectual types in the room that's just like, dude, like, appreciate what you're saying, but like, worship isn't necessarily for me. I'm really smart. I'm a thinker. I read a lot of books. So up here is where I worship. Like, I agree with the truth, but dude, I'm not lifting hands or clapping or definitely not dancing and laying on the floor like the really crazy people. Like, y'all could do that. I hear you. But in your intellectual mind, read the passages that command you to sing and deal with that mic drop. You know, I'm out. Deal with that. The same way you're commanded to read, to pray, together, you're commanded to sing. So if you don't want to deal with me, deal with Jesus. I'll let him deal with you. We're moving on. Part three, worship as encounter. Paul clarifies by continuing who is the object of our worship when he says that we are singing to whom? God. Worship is a way, not the way, but a way we can encounter the living God. When we sing, we sing unto him. We are ascribing him the worth that he is due. We're adoring him with our words and voices. I love sermons. I love hearing them and preaching them, but the most powerful moments of encounter come through worship. Moments in my life of healing, restoration, and encountering the presence of God have all come through worship. I'll tell you this. More people have remembered encountering God in a worship set than have ever remembered anything I've ever said in a sermon. A week from now, you will forget 90% of this. I have to live with that. But if you come into a moment of encounter here and now as we worship together, as we close the service, then my job is done. You've had a moment of encounter tied to the teaching of God's word. Boom. And you're being formed. You're having moments of encounter. Now, something transcendent happens that really escapes language, and time does not afford me to really tease out, and I don't have the ability to name when a community comes to worship. Not only do we encounter God as individuals, but we encounter God together as a community. When we get into the room with brothers and sisters and we sing to Jesus together, something happens. As I explained a bit last week, when we gather, faith begets faith, hope begets hope, and that's realized together in worship. As I see somebody who I love deeply encounter Jesus, that blesses me, that encourages me, that pushes me in to lean into God's presence even when I don't feel like it. Something beautiful and powerful happens when the people of God worship. It creates an attitude of expectation. Again, foster. When more than one or two people come into public worship with a holy expectancy, it can change the atmosphere of the room. People who have entered harried and distracted are quickly drawn into a sense of silent presence. Hearts and minds are lifted upward. The air becomes charged with expectancy. God sees his people looking for him, and he responds. But not only is this compelling for us together as a community, it's also compelling for those who are on the outside looking in. Worship also functions as witness. Tim Keller, it cannot be missed that Paul directly tells a, congreg a local congregation to adapt its worship because of the presence of who? Unbelievers. God wants the world to hear us worshiping him. God directs his people not to simply worship, but to sing his praises before the nations. We are not simply to communicate the gospel to them, but celebrate the gospel before them. When the outside world looks into on our worship, it is a witness to the world that people from different walks of life, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different political persuasions come to worship Jesus together. Marva Don says this, if believers worship with gladness and passion, anyone not yet a part of that community certainly will be attracted to the one who is the object of their worship. People have come to faith watching others worship. Lastly, in this section is singing as warfare. I could spend a whole hour here, guys. I'm not going to tonight, I promise. This morning, tonight, I'm already getting ahead of myself. Right now, we don't have time for that today. But all throughout the stories of the scriptures, we see God using worship as warfare. Think about a famous story you probably heard in kids' church. The people of Israel at Jericho. Who remembers how they took down the wall? Brick by brick with axe and stone. No? They just built a ladder and climbed right over it. No? 
God had them march around the city for seven days. Okay, that is a terrible warfare strategy. I want you to imagine you're in the Situation Room at the White House. The world is on the brink of war, and people are, are what, we, could, we could diplomatically speak to these people and these people, and we could do this, you know, we could send troops here, we could do this, and you're like, what if we sing? What? Yeah, let's just like walk around the country and just sing and see what happens. You would be kicked out of the room and checked into a facility immediately. That is a terrible strategy. It's foolishness to the world, but it looks like power to God. Because what happens when the people worship? They sing, they shout, trumpets blare, and the walls do what? Come down. That's one instance, bro. That's like old. So, okay, there's multiple stories in the scriptures where Israel's surrounded by enemies, and God calls them to worship. And suddenly the enemies start attacking and killing themselves. The people of Israel don't even lift a finger and their enemies crumble. Well, dude, that's Old Testament. Okay, Paul is in prison. And him and Silas begin to sing. And they're broken out of jail by the Spirit. Deal with that. Something happens when we worship that I can't quantify or name articulately, but something happens in realms we cannot perceive when the people of God worship. We not only declare it to ourselves, to the people in the room, to the world watching, when the people of God worship, we declare to the powers, you have been overthrown, Jesus is Lord, and there is nothing you can do that can stop his kingdom from advancing. That's what we proclaim. Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. As the church sings and proclaims truth to the nations, walls still fall and people are set free and the kingdom of darkness is pushed back. All throughout the story of the church, we've seen the church use song to carry them through hard times, to be their worship. I think about our black brothers and sisters who have carved the way for worship through what has been known as Negro spirituals. These spiritual songs sung, not in cathedrals, not in nice, neat worship gatherings like this, but in fields longing for redemption. The songs you sing today with awesome beats and cool harmonies and all this stuff find their origin in fields with brothers and sisters longing for freedom. The Christian music movement that's happening now gets its influences from jazz and hip-hop, which get their influences from gospel music, which gets its influences from the singing happening in the fields. Our stories that we sing together as a community were born by people longing for a better future. Think about that. Lastly, let's land this plane. Worship is overflow. Paul concludes by saying, with Gratitude in your hearts. Now, gratitude's a good translation. It's actually the word charis in Greek, which just means grace. Singing with grace in your hearts. Now, this does not mean that, like, you feel grace towards others, but it actually means that you are experiencing grace yourself. So you sing as you are experiencing God's grace towards you. You are overwhelmed by grace and then overflowing with gratitude. That's worship. You think about who God is, what he's done, who you are in him, and that is an encounter with grace that wells up in gratitude that comes out as worship. We sing to God with an awareness of his action towards us in our lives. If God is initiating, worship is our response as overflow to him. Out of all these things God has done, Every week, we close with the same song. The last thing we do together as a community is we sing. You might think we're lazy and just choose the same song out of, out of, uh, out of lack of planning. Not the case. According to church tradition, the doxology, the song we sing at the end of every service, is one of the oldest songs in church history. They find it being sung by the early church thousands of years ago, this same song. We sing that song as a reminder and as a thank you. First as a reminder that our story doesn't begin with us. It begins long before us. 
But as a community, when we come to gather and worship, it is not just our voices, but our voices joining the song of heaven. And not just our, songs, our voices joining the songs of heaven, but sung by saints for millennia. That there are people who were born and lived and died that have sung these songs and you stand on their shoulders. It is a reminder that our church is connected to the story of the church that has gone on for millennia. And one day, this church will no longer be. But there will be a church after us that will sing these very same songs. Why? Because a building may close. A church community gathering may end. But worship will be forever. As long as there's the people of God and Jesus is risen, which he surely has, there will always be singing. And as we get a glimpse into the future, we see it's covered in worship. So we sing the doxology as a reminder and also as a way to say thank you because everything good flows from that relationship with him. I want to close with the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a father in the church who says this, it is the voice of the church that is heard in singing together. It is not I who sing, but the church. However, as a member of the church, I may share in its song. Thus, all true singing together must serve to widen our spiritual horizon. It must enable us to recognize our small community as a member of the great Christian church on earth and must help us willingly and joyfully to take our place in the song of the church with our singing, be it feeble or good. So guess what we're going to do right now? We're going to sing. We're going to worship because God is worthy. Would you join me in standing? We're going to worship. Jake's going to lead us into that moment. But we also want to create a time of response. Some of you have been deeply impacted by what you've just heard. And there's not maybe necessarily a way that you can quantify what's happening in here. But as a way of reminding, you are an embodied being. You're not a brain on a stick. And so we want to invite your whole person to respond to what God is doing in you now. And the way you're going to do that is just by coming forward and placing out your hands as a way of telling God, I hear you, and I want to hear more of you. And so as a community, we're going to surround those who are responding with proclaiming and singing truth over them. And as those responding, they're going to be people who come and pray over you and bless the work that God is doing in your life. And so here's my encouragement to you. Would you join in the song that's already being sung right now? Would you lift your voice as a way of declaring to Jesus he's worthy of your song? Let us worship.